everybody, welcome to Everything is Interesting, X-Ray's very own Science Inquiry Show. I'm Kira Kleinberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. And joining us today is my good friend, Paul Francis. What's up, Paul? Hi, Kira. Other Kira. Yo. I'm uh, nervous to be here. <laughs> cool. Cool. Well, we're happy that you're here. Oh, yeah. So uh, you guys have a podcast about being smart uh, in terms of science. I'm not. Um, so I was hoping you could help me out with uh, a question I've been having. Okay, go for it. So I've been uh, having these dreams. They're they're coming to me nightly, and it's about uh, untapped, un, un unlocked power. This just is a, deep. Just a wealth of yeah. it, a, a a deep spring of it. Um, We're not psychologists. I should preface. Oh, it's okay. It's something maybe more re- relating to science, or something that might not be able to be spill the beans, Paul. Yeah, I think I'm a Jedi. Um, <laughs> And I just I'm so glad that's where that was going. Yeah, I just want to know if you guys could help me fulfill that. Unfortunately for you, Paul, neither of us are going to be able to help you use the force to lift rocks or X-wings out of swamps. Bummer. Uh, if you really want, I could swap you with a stick, and then I could make you carry me around like a backpack for training. I mean, we could do that. I mean, I did skip the gym this morning, but my <laughs> shin splints are acting up. Is that what they do uh, at I your can, gym? Yeah. I mean, well, no, you'll carry me, actually, so you should, that's a bad idea. Anyway, while we may not have intimate knowledge of the force, we do have something equally as powerful, and that is science. Science! Science is no stranger to the study of paranormal mind powers. As it turns out, big schools like Stanford, Harvard, and UCLA have all had labs or even entire departments that are dedicated to researching some pretty paranormal-sounding powers, like telekinesis, a.k.a. moving things with our minds, and telepathy, a.k.a. communicating without the use of our five senses. Dope. Unfortunately, it was real hard to find any legitimate tests of these abilities that showed positive results when repeated in different laboratories. And if a result can't be repeated, we can't call it scientific fact. But telepathy and telekinesis may actually be possible in some form or another. It really depends on your definition of these words. There's a way, for example, to say, let my brain talk directly to your brain, or for my brain to talk directly to a computer that's then controlling like a robot. But both of these things involve having wires in between. So the question is, does that still count as psychic ability? I'm not so sure. Let's get let's dig deeper. In searching the internet, I stumbled across a pretty fascinating experiment. A volunteer sent a message using only his brainwaves to another volunteer that was in another country. It was possible because each volunteer was fitted with an electronic device called a brain computer interface or BCI for short. The brain computer interface allows communication directly between minds without the use of any of our five senses. So, there's a computer reading your brain then your thoughts are sent to somebody else's brain? Yeah. That sure sounds like telepathy. Yeah. I mean, you would say that because you want to be a Jedi. And I think it is. I think it is. But again, that's just because I want it to be. I, I have to agree. And again, it all depends on how you define telepathy, I think. Mm-hmm. But what is cool is that we can also use our brain activity as a kind of computer language to manipulate objects. So going the sort of telekinesis route. This is the technology that's being used right now to create thought-controlled robotic limbs for people who need prosthetics. It can also be used to allow paralyzed patients to communicate by mentally choosing letters on a screen. And some days soon to actually relay sensory information like temperature, color, even the meaning of words to patients who can't gather that data on their own. Okay, I see what you guys are getting at. 
The brain-computer interface might be my best bet to getting Jedi powers, but I'd be more like a bionic version, yeah. like Darth Vader. Uh, I think I'm cool with that. Uh, I always did root for the villains. Yeah, totally. So how does it work? All right, well, to help us get a better understanding of how it works, we talked to Joel Murphy, who's the co-founder of the tech company OpenBCI. My name is Joel Murphy, and I am co-founder of OpenBCI, among other things. OpenBCI is an open-source EEG company. We sell hardware amplifiers to measure brain waves. Everybody's brain is a sort of a sea of sloshing around electrical connections. And BCI measures those electrical signals and uses them to interface with a computer or other electronics or hardware device. The story of BCI really starts in 1924, when Hans Berger first used conductive wires to detect electrical signals given off by the human brain, also known as brainwaves. The wires were then attached to pens, which drew out the detected patterns. Berger had effectively invented the electroencephalogram, or EEG for short. The patterns that the EEG detected were being created by changes in the electrical charge of neurons, which are the communication cells that make up our brain and our nervous system. Neurons receive, process, and transmit messages to each other through electrical and chemical signals. And those signals, those are my brainwaves? Uh, kind of. It's, it's more like brainwaves are the electromagnetic field that accompany those electric signals. These messages move through your neurons, and they're essentially little bolts of electricity. So right now, my brain might be making electricity, powering this room, powering this podcast. That's why we hooked you up to all these wires (laughs) when you got here. It is pretty awesome, though. So see, the neurons in your brain, they're cells, and they're lined up end to end, but not necessarily in a single straight line. For example, one long spindly neuron can actually be connected to thousands of others at any given time. And none of these cells actually touch. Instead, neurons send signals across the gap that's between the cells, which is known as a synapse, using chemical messages called neurotransmitters. They're like little tiny cell postcards. And so if you imagine the neuron, um, the neurotransmitters get released from the end of the neuron into the synapse, that empty space. And then they are picked up by the next neuron in the line. This also causes a little bit of electrical charge to build up in that receiving neuron. And once that receiving neuron has picked up enough neuron transmitters and enough charge has built up, it triggers this little bolt of electrical signal called an action potential. And this runs down the entire length of that receiving neuron to the other end, where it then triggers the release of neurotransmitters, which get picked up by the next neuron and the message moves on down the line. Kind of like the old Pony Express. (laughs) Yeah. Old Pony Neuron Express. Where there's a brain thinking lots of thoughts there's lots of tiny bolts of electricity shooting through lots of tiny neurons. So I guess my big question is, all of these things that are culminating into a bigger picture, how do I become a Jedi based off of all these things? You're saying a lot of science, but I'm not hearing a lot of results. We're getting there. We're we're kind of working through how we got from understanding our brain has electrical signals to being able to harness those signals to control things with our thoughts. Mm -hmm. That's all I want. We're getting there. Okay. So moving forward in time, in 1961, just 36 years after Hans Berger's discovery, doctors then figured out how to use this information to help solve a very pressing medical issue, which is hearing loss. 
For many deaf patients, the issue lies in the part of the ear called the cochlea. Sitting just behind the eardrum, the cochlea contains sensory perception neurons that detect vibrational sound waves, and then it converts them into electrical signals that can be passed on to the brain through the neurons. When the cochlea is damaged, the neural message-sending system is never triggered in the first place, and the brain doesn't perceive the sound. But cochlear implants, invented by Dr. William House, bypass the need for the cochlea completely. The implant picks up the sound wave pattern of, say, I don't know, your favorite song. And then it digitizes it. The digital sound pattern is converted into electrical signals that then travel directly up the auditory nerve and straight to your brain. And you perceive hearing that song. Successful cochlear implants demonstrated that electrical signals could be sent from a machine directly to the brain via the nervous system. And this was essentially the beginning of the brain-computer interface technology. A decade and a half later, Professor Jacques Vidal, a co-founder of UCLA's computer science department, decided to try reversing the direction of this electrical signal. So rather than sending a message from a computer to a brain, as the cochlear implant did, Vidal devised a way to instead capture the brain's neural electrical pulses using an EEG and then send those to a computer. Vidal knew that neurons fired in different parts of the brain when the brain was performing different tasks. So he figured that a computer could be programmed to produce different responses depending on where the brain waves were being produced. And a volunteer that was hooked up to an EEG could use this program to direct the computer to do different tasks. So I'm not the science guy in the room, so forgive my skepticism. But who has that much control over which neurons in their brain are firing? I can barely tell when I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, turns out you do. So do you, Kira. So do I. So does Will over there in the producer's studio. Hey, Will. All of our brains, they have this section called the motor cortex that controls your voluntary muscle movements. And it's very conveniently portioned out into different sections that each control a different body part. Even though you might not feel this happening, it's happening. Here's Joel Murphy again. So your motor cortex is this part of your brain controlling all your muscles in your body. And the motor cortex in most people extends from right above the ear, about an inch or so wide, in a band all the way up to the top of your head on both sides. And so different body parts are are found along that strip in your motor cortex. Now, when you're not moving, a brainwave appears. This would be called MU, M-U. And this is unlike 12, 13 hertz somewhere around in that range. If you move, or even think about moving, the mu will dissipate. Now, depending upon where on the motor cortex you're you're sensing, is going to give you an indication of what part of the body is moving. I can't get over that it's called moo. (laughs) Is it because it's like a cow sleeping, standing still? Yeah, it's really weird when you look at the the pattern of your brain waves, like on the computer, it looks like a tiny cow. It's super weird. I wish that were true. You're messing with me. I'm messing with you. Anyway, because of the way the motor cortex is set up, a volunteer could simply move or even think about moving different parts of their body, and that would produce electrical signals in different parts of their brain. So in Vidal's experiment, the EEG would be routed into a computer whose monitor would displaying a cursor in a maze. To solve the maze, the volunteer would simply have to think about moving particular parts of their body, and the BCI software would interpret the neural signals and direct the cursor to move left, right, up, or down. Well, this idea of moving a cursor with your your thoughts was put to the ultimate test in 1998, when an invasive brain-computer interface designed by neurologist Philip Kennedy was 
actually physically implanted in the brain of a patient who was completely paralyzed and unable to communicate in any way. This implant essentially allowed the patient to do what Vidal had proposed. With months of training, he was able to learn to focus his thinking enough to actually control the cursor on a screen and communicate. The way they did it was that researchers first trained the software to recognize specific patterns in brainwave frequency and location by asking the paralyzed person questions they already knew the answers to, like, is your name Beulah? And do you have green hair? They could measure exactly what electrical signals the brain produced when thinking the word no and the word yes. This gave them a pretty accurate way to understand what the patient was thinking when they were asked other questions like, are you hungry? And furthermore, the computer could then be programmed to turn those yes and no thoughts into movements of the cursor, giving the patient a way to communicate even more complicated thoughts. Whose name is Beulah with green hair? Well, hopefully no one that's having know that the answer is no. Oh, okay. I mean, sorry, listen, if your name is Beulah and you have green hair, you are wonderful. Let's not name shame people. So this BCI thing, it's reading the patient's thoughts? I can see why it might seem that way, but no, it's not quite that. Here's what Joel Murphy of OpenBCI has to say about it. With EEG and other sorts of BCI technology, you're not really reading thoughts per se. The more invasive you get, of course, the more specific signals you're able to read. And of course, the signals become much easier to read if you're right on a neuron or whatever. But we're not reading thoughts. It's more about brain states, or as I mentioned, like depending upon where on the motor cortex you're, you're sensing, what part of the body is moving. If you're just joining us, I'm Kira Kleinberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. And I'm Paul Francis. And this is Everything is Interesting on X-Ray. We're discussing the brain-computer interface, which is technology that allows us to communicate with computers with only our brain waves. So researchers can pick up signals from different parts of the patient's brain, associate those signals with what the patient was communicating, and use that information to know what the patient was thinking. Would it matter what kind of brain wave or where in the brain it was being produced? Both things matter, actually. Here's Joel Murphy again. Hey, Joel. A lot of what people do with BCI is to take the electrical potentials that are sort of wiggling around and find different kinds of information in it. Find out what frequencies are embedded in that signal. For example, a frequency of 10 hertz is alpha range. And alpha is predominant in most people in the occipital lobe, in the back of your head, when you close your eyes. Because when you close your eyes, your occipital lobe has basically nothing to do, in quotation marks, because there's not very much information all going into it. When you open your eyes, that wave goes away. So that's an example of a brain wave. By the early 2000s, brain-computer interface technology was advanced enough that it could detect and interpret the difference in brainwave patterns produced by simple thoughts like yes and no or up and down. But researchers had bigger goals, namely using a person's thoughts to remotely move something more complex, like a robotic prosthetic arm. To do this, they would first have to produce a much more detailed map of the brain to figure out exactly which neurons fire when a specific muscle group moves, like the one that causes your fingers to grab an object. In 2003, researchers at the Duke University Medical Center implanted microelectrodes into the brain of two rhesus macaque monkeys. They focused on areas already known to light up when muscles were moving, like the frontal and parietal lobes. While the monkeys played simple joystick-controlled video games, which I don't know about you guys, but that in itself is just cool to me. <laughs> I would like to go there. Do we know what kind of games? I know, Pac-Man. Really boring okay. ones. No, no I don't they're, know. they're super boring ones. I'm just, that's just the, the best joystick game. 
in my opinion. Maybe asteroids, I don't know. But while they were playing these very simple games, the researchers mapped the patterns of electrical signals in the brain and correlated them with the particular muscles required to move the joystick in a particular direction. In the second part of the experiment, researchers used the information that they were learning to begin accurately moving a robotic hand that was in another room. So if, say, every time a monkey used its pronator quadratus muscle to turn its wrist, electrical signals showed up in neuron patch number 12, then the brain-computer interface program would record that, and then every time there was neural activity in the monkey's neuron patch number 12, the robotic arm would turn its wrist. I guess it's like machine learning, Yeah, right? totally. That's like, exactly what it is. It learns the patterns and recognizes the patterns. It is a machine and it does learning. (laughs) Oh, here's something really cool too. As the monkeys moved their hands around, they ended up having enough self-awareness to realize that it was actually them who were causing this robotic arm to bend and flex. And in an amazing development that the researchers did not expect, in just a matter of days, one of the monkeys figured out that she didn't need to move her own arm at all and instead began to manipulate the robotic arm simply using her thoughts. Monitoring her brain signals, they saw that the monkey had learned to assimilate the robotic arm as an extension of her own body. And what's more, they could see that the neural patterns actively reorganizing themselves to adapt to the task of moving a new device that functions differently than the monkey's own body. So not only is this amazing, it also lends a lot of insight into just how much plasticity the brain has, even in a fully grown adult. This really had huge implications. These researchers had successfully created a working replacement hand that didn't even need to be in the same room as its user. What's more, it demonstrated that they could simultaneously train the user to manipulate the limb and train the limb to interpret the user's thoughts, both at the same time, killing two birds with one stone. This was good evidence that the same thing might be possible for humans. This is good news to me. Uh, I think I'm further going down the path of Darth Vader. Uh, mm-hmm. Going to get that bionic hand here pretty soon. It's just going to be connected yeah. to my thoughts. What uh, are you going to do with it? You're just going to use it to pick the up world. the drinks? I'm Universe, probably I mean. going to mind strangle uh, inept lieutenants with it. Yeah, totally. Well, you'll be glad to know since you're going to have a prosthetic Darth Vader hand, that prosthetic limbs have seen many advancements since the air invention, which was about 3,000 years ago. You know, they're crafted out of lighter, more durable materials now. But if you're a recent amputee, learning to control a prosthetic requires training in a whole new set of muscle movements. There's a whole school for that. Is there really? Yeah, it's Jedi school. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we that, that was good. So it'll be a miracle. <laughs> I mean, well, okay, let's say you can't go to this special Jedi school because you live here on Earth and not in Star Wars. Bummer. I, now I'm just sad. Let me just take a moment to be sad about that. But, okay, but let's say you live here on Earth and that you've lost your leg from le- right above the knee and you're fitted for a replacement. If it's too easily bendable, this replacement, well, you won't really be able to stand because your leg will just collapse. It'll be floppy. But if it doesn't bend at all, then how the heck are you going to walk? I mean, imagine that. Stiff leg, just... Bah, you, bah, can, bah. you can do it. Apparently, people do it. It just requires a lot of excess So much energy. effort. Yeah. yeah. So the typical knee replacement technology either employs an automatic lock, which can be manually disengaged to allow the knee to bend. That sounds like a lot of work every time you want to move your leg. Or a weight-sensitive lock that engages under the pressure of body weight. But neither is easy to use and both require a lot of training. So with the advent of brain-computer interface-controlled limbs, the transition between biotic leg and bionic leg could be far easier. Last year, a team at Virginia Commonwealth University fitted a volunteer with a new knee 
that had a motor-activated lock switch. So this works via brainwaves. The volunteer basically learns to use the mental imaging to send lock and unlock signals to the knee. And then after just a little bit of practice, the volunteer was able to control the lock switch correctly almost 100% of the time simply by thinking about it. This technology isn't limited to just the prosthetic legs, however. Over at OpenBCI, Joel Murphy's team has experimented with using brainwaves to send signals to remote control robots and even a motorized shark balloon. So maybe he could help you with your hand that you want to th- like send off oh, into missions totally to strangle people. Oh, he could help you. Yeah, they move all kinds of robots. Just today. with your thoughts. You want to send me his contact card? Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. that's the best use of BCI I've heard so far. Also, since there were no wires that connected the robots, the shark balloon, um, to the user's brain... It really does present the question, is this now true telekinesis? You know, if you're able to send your thoughts across space to a robot and control it, does this mean that the people who do that are actually Jedis? I think yes. I think yes. Because here's why. Because the shark balloon, right? Like, there's no way. You're sending your thoughts through the BCI to the computer, and then the computer is sending like remote control radio waves to the shark balloon and like that's how it's moving so wait so you're connected to the computer via wires yes so there are, are still wires like a helmet with wires yes oh my gosh you guys on the website i will post a picture of myself because when i met with joel murphy i got to like wear one of those headsets science okay so i'm looking at a graph that has a frequency versus the amplitude so this is actually this is measuring my brain waves measuring the strength of the wave at whatever frequency it is and we're measuring in in microvolts okay really teeny weeny microvolts so there it goes so we've got seven it's breaking out (laughs) is is it because of what my brain is doing or because of what the machine is doing it could be it could be both okay clearly you guys i'm thinking really intense thoughts by the way, the blueprint for that headset thing that measures your brainwaves, yeah. uh, it's, it's also open source, and you can download the whole thing at openbci.com, and then you can 3D print your own head scanny thing. Can you also make a shark balloon? Or, like, I think you do that yourself. Balloon, you just buy it Toys R Us, and then oh, you like hook it up to okay. remote control. throw that link on the website, too, for oh, the I Weekend Warriors. I absolutely Yeah, All of our weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, the big question would be, are we getting closer to a world where we don't need the wires mm-hmm. to, to where we have that like an implant in our brain that can then send out a, a signal or, or something like that. A tiny computer in your brain. That's a whole other question. But and does, does whole that other count? Movie. Do you guys think that that counts even though it's not something we were born with? Does that count as having the psychic abilities I mean, that we've always dreamed about? Not in the traditional like paranormal sense. I'm a mystic. But in mm-hmm. the, I'm a rad scientist and I'm man- manipulating the universe around me, yeah. which is oh, yeah. like but probably if- even cooler. That's like some Rick Sanchez that, stuff. Yeah, or some Iron Man stuff. Now that we've gotten really good at interpreting what neural impulses in the brain mean, researchers are returning to the work of sending more and more specialized messages to the brain. The University of California is working to map electrical patterns that occur in the temporal lobe when someone hears or imagines hearing a particular word. This will eventually translate into technology that can both produce and interpret speech, transforming the lives of people who have suffered brain damage and have lost the ability to comprehend or formulate language. Researchers are doing similar mapping of the visual cortex by reading the neural signals in the thalamus of a cat that was staring at particular images. Dr. Yang Dan at UC Berkeley was able to reproduce those images that the cat was seeing, albeit fuzzier, on a screen across the room. Perhaps after this whole half hour of us talking about BCI, that doesn't sound that incredible, but truthfully, this is you have to go Google this experiment. Like the reconstructed images are some of the most amazing and also creepiest things I have ever seen. 
So does that mean we can eventually create images of uh, what people see in their thoughts and their dreams? Because that's really cool. It's also really creepy. It's like, ah, oh, real monsters. Ooh, also, and then we... what's a thalamus? <laughs> Different show. Well, dreams, I, maybe, but probably not. According to Dr. Garrett Stanley, who was involved in the cat vision experiment, we understand so little about how thoughts and dreams are actually formed at all in our brains that if it is even possible to turn these things into concrete images on a screen, it, it won't be happening for a very long time. A more practical application of this ability to map vision is to turn the process around and cause a patient's brain to see something by inducing phosphenes, which are those flashes of light that are perceived by the brain, but like not correlated to any real light entering the eyes. Are those like when you're seeing stars, when you're pressing on your eyelids? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Those are phosphenes. You do that often, Paul? Press on my eyelids yeah. or see stars. Yeah. I'm often uh, dehydrated. Oh. So uh, you're always <laughs> just rubbing your eyes and uh, he's often just really so bored. <laughs> but yes, yes. Those those are the little the same thing, the colored dots. Um, mechanical stimulation of the retina like that can actually cause you to see the phosphenes. And also random firings of neurons somewhere along the visual system. And that, my friend, brings us back to the telepathy experiment. In 2014, researchers took advantage of these phosphenes to communicate a thought from a BCI user in India to a BCI user in France. Using the language of binary code, the sender spelled out the word chow in his mind. The pattern his firing neurons produced was recorded, emailed to France, and then translated into an electrical pattern that was used to directly stimulate the neurons in the recipient's visual cortex, which produced phosphine flashes that spelled chow. That is really cool. Mm-hmm. As, and in a different, whole different country. Yeah. So this has been fun and pretty educational. But I have to still ask the question, does this make me any closer to being a Jedi? Because that's why I'm here. You guys are cool, but that's why I'm here. You gotta stick with your priorities. I understand, Paul. Yeah. Well, luckily I got a chance to ask Joel Murphy, like when I had that EEG thing on my head, if I could move a robot, would that count as telekinesis? And was I a Jedi? So here's what he had to say. You know, could it be like, well, when I'm really concentrating, that's when the robot walks forward. Yes. That's very cool. Does that make me a Jedi? No. Are you sure? Do you want to rethink that answer? (laughs) Darn it. Well, my test has failed, you guys. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. Well, even though we can't make Star Wars real for you right now, Paul, I'm sorry about right that. Right now. Um, brain-computer interface technology is real, and it's pretty freaking groundbreaking. We want to thank Joel Murphy from OpenBCI for taking the time to talk to us about electrodes and alpha waves. To find out more about their work or download the open source codes for 3D printing your own EEG headset or any of the programs to run BCI, visit OpenBCI.com. Thank you also to Paul Francis for hanging out with us. I'm sorry that we couldn't fulfill your Jedi dreams, but hopefully we provided you with some interesting alternatives, perhaps? Where there's a will, there's a way. I'm going going down a path. A little bit closer. Also, thank you to Will Romy, our fantastic, ever-gracious, and patient producer. You're the best! To re-listen to this or any episode of Everything is Interesting, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, and of course, at our website, everythingisinteresting.org. Where you can also find that really cool photo of that thing on my head. Yeah, that's going to make you look so cool when you download it. Make me look so cool. And build it. Because you got to build it. Yeah, yeah you got to build it. For this episode, I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. And I'm Paul Francis. 
Thanks for listening to Everything is Interesting right here on X-Ray, where radio is yours. 